Well, we'll come to the time now in our service we're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We're starting uh, in verse 8, but I'm going to read just the first two verses to kind of get us into it again. So Hebrews chapter 11, continuing this series by faith. And when you found that, it's on page 851 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found it, would you stand together with me and I'll read our passage for us this morning. Starting in verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And of course, as we've been going through this, we've been looking at who these ancients are. We've talked about Abel, we've talked about Enoch, last Sunday we talked about Noah. And now today, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, that's his son and his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Skip down to verse 13. All these people, that's everybody he's talked about up until now, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more quickly and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word. Spirit of God, we just ask you to continue to meet with us now as we come to your word. Uh, we're trusting that you have something specifically to speak to us today through this word. This is not just some ancient document written thousands of years ago. This is a living word because you inspired by your spirit the men who wrote these things down. And it's a word that speaks to us still today that pierces down to the very heart of us. You tell us whenever you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And oh God, I ask would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Uh, whenever you're talking with people about something like camping, camping, uh, generally speaking, there's one of two kinds of responses you get. Uh, you get the people on this side who are like, oh, I can't wait until we can get out and do that again. And then on the other side, you get the people who question why anyone would willingly choose to do that. Uh, both of those things are absolutely true. I've made no secret over the course of time that I tend to lean towards that second response. Not a huge camping fan. And yet, some of you in here know, I, I stretched myself. I stretched myself this past summer when some friends invited us to go camping with them up in Whistler. And you know what? It wasn't as bad as I remembered. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but listen, whether you love camping or not, 
that I think we would all agree there's, generally speaking, two things that are true about camping. First of all, it takes a lot of preparation ahead of time. You have to prepare and think ahead of time whenever you're going to go camping, particularly if we're talking about real camping. Okay, not pulling your huge motorhome into the woods. Okay, that's, that's not camping. I'm sorry to tell you, you're not camping. I'm talking about real, like, going out into the woods with everything you need to survive strapped on your back. That needs a lot of thought and preparation ahead of time, right? You've got to be thinking, about, okay, exactly where am I going? You've got a map. You're looking at, like, what are the topographical conditions? What's the weather going to be like? What kind of food? All that stuff you need to know or you're not going to make it out. Secondly, camping is inherently temporary. It's temporary. That aside from more devastating circumstances in someone's life, nobody sets up a campsite with the intent of making that their new residence. Right? Like back in 2011, do you remember when everyone sent up that tent city on the front lawn of Vancouver Art Gallery, Occupy Vancouver? Do you remember this? Nobody thought when they saw that, oh, I guess that's where all those people live now. Forwarding address to Vancouver Art Gallery. No, everybody knew, okay, that's for now, but tents are temporary. But given all that, I think it makes what we just read in this passage all the more incredible when we consider the story of this guy Abraham, a man that God called to pack up his family, leave everything he knew, and go where he didn't even know where he was going. No chance to prepare, nothing. God just said, go to the place that I'll show you. And then, having to live a temporary existence, functionally camping for the remainder of his life in the very land that God had promised him. Occupy Canaan, we could call it. He was sent there, and he lived in tents, it says all this time. I mean, when you really look at what it was that God called Abraham to do, and how obediently he carried it out, it's no wonder why you keep hearing about Abraham from the, from the first time he's mentioned in Genesis 12, like throughout the rest of the Bible. And why the Apostle Paul, Romans 4.16, refers to him as the father of all who believe. This guy just, his faith was incredible. Well, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, maybe this is your first Sunday, I don't know. We're continuing this series that we started a few weeks ago, going through 11th chapter of Hebrews, in a series called By Faith, where each week we're looking at the stories of some, these incredible stories found of these men and women who throughout the Bible were enabled to accomplish these impossible things by faith. And faith, again, that was defined for us there in that first verse, being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And when we look at what Abraham was enabled to accomplish as he sought to follow God through the course of his life, one of the things that makes his story so incredibly relevant and helpful for us today is because what it does as we read his story it challenges our understanding very strongly of what it means to follow God ourselves. Because maybe you're here today and you would say, yes, absolutely, I'm a follower of God. Yes, I follow God. And yet, for the vast majority of us, we have no concept whatsoever of what it means to follow God like Abraham, like we saw here. We can't even fathom what that would be like. And what I mean by that is, yes, we might follow God, but almost all of us, tend to very often put an if-when clause in front of our obedience. So yeah, God, I'll, I'll follow you. If you could just do this, this, and this, 
That, then, then we're good. Yes, God, I will, I will follow you, whatever you're asking me to do. I'll be obedient to it. When you make the circumstances feel a little bit less scary, I'm with you. I'm ready to go. Just work out that first, please. And yet, what we learn through Abraham's story is that to truly follow God means to be willing to follow wherever he leads. Even if that means not knowing where we're going or how it's going to work out first. And it also means continuing to follow him, even when the results of our obedience don't turn out like we thought they would. That's different, right? And so in order to see how Abraham accomplished this seemingly impossible call of God on his life, and how we can hope to follow God in the scary, impossible things that he calls us to as well, I want to look at our passage here in just two ways today. We're going to talk about the object of faith, And then faith in the promise, those two things, object of faith and faith in the promise. So if you have closed those Bibles, would you please open them again uh, to that passage, Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. Follow along with me as we learn together what it means to really follow God by faith. Okay, so let's look first of all at the object of faith. The object of faith. And I want you to do this first of all, if you can. Imagine a scenario with me, okay? Are you ready? You come home from work. It's Friday. You come home from work, and there in front of the house is your spouse, best friend, significant other, whatever. They're standing there by the side of the road in front of the house by a taxi cab. Doors open. They're smiling at you. You walk up, and the only thing they say to you is, I've taken care of everything. Get in the taxi with me, and let's go. Can you see it? Okay, now, for most of us, in that scenario, there's going to be a flood of questions that come pouring in, uh, no matter how awesome that might sound, huge questions coming in, not least of which is, uh, let's go where? Uh, Where are we going? But just imagine, continue to work this through. Whatever question you give them, whatever you ask them about, the only response they give you is, I've taken care of everything. Now get in. (laughs) It's hard, right? uh, I'm feeling stressed right now just thinking about it. The the question I want you to be able to answer for yourself as you consider that scenario, how much faith, how much confidence do you need to have in that person to actually get in the taxi cab and drive away? How much do you need? Now, sure, okay, I know some of us in here, maybe we're a bit more spontaneous, free by nature, and for us, the answer is easier. We're like, uh, what's the problem here? It's a free trip. Shut up and get in the cab. But, come on, that's, that's an impulsive response, right? That's not thought through, carefully considered, and it's nothing to do with faith. What I'm asking you is this. How much faith, how much confidence do you need to have in that person to get in the taxi and drive away without guilt, without regret, uh, without fear? I don't, want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my guess is for the majority of us, it's a lot. You would have to have an incredible amount of faith, a, a, a huge amount of confidence in that person to get in a taxi and go away for who knows how long, to who knows where. And I think the more responsibilities you have in the life, the more that's on the line, probably the greater amount of faith that's required. I want you to, as much as possible, hold on to that feeling of standing by that taxi and like, do I get in? Do I 
Go on this trip. Hold on to that feeling, even if it's only theoretical in your mind. Because when you apply that feeling now to what we read in our passage here, we see that Abraham, who actually really did face that decision in real time, we see just what a big deal it is when we read that in verse 8 when it says, when God called him to go to a place that he would receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. So we see he, he clearly had a great deal of faith in God, didn't he? Now, Genesis 12. Genesis 12 gives us the narrative that Hebrews 11 is referring to. And I think if we just dig into that a little bit, it's going to help us understand this scenario a little bit better. So if you want to, turn there with me to Genesis 12. It's on page 8 in your Bible. We're going to look at just a couple verses here because we can't read all of this. Uh, As you're turning there, just a bit of historical context. What we learn in the verses just before chapter 12 is that it tells us Abraham and his family, they originally came from this place called Ur of the Chaldeans which is basically modern-day Iraq. So, so Abraham and his family, they're, they're Iraqis, basically, and they're headed to Canaan, actually, and they end up stopping somewhere along the way in a city called Haran, which is in present-day Turkey. And they stay there. That's where they end up. They don't go any further. And there in Haran, Abraham is now 75 years old, and then we read this, Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Just go to the land I will show you. So thinking of that now, in relation to the the scenario we just imagined, this is basically God pulled up to Abraham's house in a taxi and said, I've taken care of everything, get in the cab and let's go. But of course, it's, it's way more than that, isn't it? It's way more than that. Because God isn't talking about some kind of a weekend getaway. He's asking Abraham to, to move, right? Pack up everything. Pack up your family. Pack up and, and leave everything and everyone you know. And, and, and head out and move. And oh, by the way, I'm not actually going to tell you where you're going. I just want you to head out in a direction I'm going to give you with everything you own. And I'll let you know when you get there. Got it? Like, are you kidding me? That's, that's pretty much an impossible ask for anybody, isn't it? That's impossible. I mean, not least of which, can you imagine the conversation that Abraham had to have with his wife after that? That could not have gone well. I don't care how well he butted it up. Oh, man, your hair looks so good today. Can we talk about something for a minute? It would have gone really bad. But he did it. And yet, and yet... As impossible as this sounds, look at Abraham's response in verse 4. Without commentary, no questioning, complaining, arguing, we simply read, so Abraham left, as the Lord told him. What? I, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. That's incredible faith. But here's the problem. Here's the problem when we read stuff like this. If we didn't know better, we could read something like that and assume... Trusting God with a massive decision like that was just easy for Abraham. It was easy. No big deal, right? He, he, he places decisions like this that we would have just been tapping out long ago. Guys like Abraham, uh, pick anybody, Moses, David, Apostle Paul, for them, 
It was, it was easy. You know, they could just stand there under the crushing weight of these huge, impossible things God called them to do, capes flapping in the breeze, and just say, yes, absolutely, God. Anything else you need? We do that. We read the Bible that way all the time, don't we? And yet what's sad and what's so terrible about that is that when you do that, in the end, what you end up doing is actually justifying inaction, justifying stagnation in your life and in your faith, believing the lie that tells you, you're reading this and you believe the lie that tells you you're, you're nothing like this guy is. These guys are in the Bible, man. It's for a reason. That's not you. There's, there's no way that God could use you to accomplish anything. And we believe it. And as a result of that, we living under the weight of that, we resign ourselves to this very safe, careful, risk-free existence where we don't step out and really trust God for anything great, attempt anything great for Him, and we just live in our comfort zones and within our own realm of ability. I've said this so many times, I'm going to keep repeating it. Hebrews 11 is not a compendium of superheroes for us to ooh and ah over. It is a listing of the stories of everyday men and women, just like you, just like me, who were called to do impossible things and then enabled to do it. They were enabled to do it. How? Okay, how? How could, how could such a regular everyday person like you or me pack up family, everything we have into you all, and just head in the direction that God says, not knowing where we're going? How, how could we do that? Well, if you look at the story listed for us in the rest of chapter 12, also some of what's said in chapter 15, what you see is that alongside God's incredible call on Abraham's life, leave his father's household, go to the place he would show him, God also made two incredible promises to Abraham. First of all, that he would make him into a great nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that he would give him the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Now, never mind the call of God being impossible. These promises, impossible too, right? Because if you know that story at all, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, super old, just like him. And she's been barren all her life. How are they going to be a, a nation as many as the stars in the sky? That's next week. What we're talking about today is this one. How, how's God going to give him this land of Canaan when it's already inhabited? People already live there. Hi, they're called the Canaanites. That's why it's called Canaan. How, how is he going to give him that land as an inheritance? Well, here's how the Bible tells us that Abraham accomplished all those impossible things. Genesis 15, Romans 4. The Bible says Abraham believed God. He believed him. Which lines up perfectly with what we just saw two weeks ago. Verse 6. To acceptance from God comes when we believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's, that's what he did. He, he believed God. That's what it means. Abraham heard what God was calling him to do, listened to the incredible promises that God made, and he said, okay. Okay, I believe you. I, I believe you can do what you're saying here. And he went. And of course, uh, uh, Hebrews 11, it's saying this exact same thing, just using different language. It says he did it by faith. It's the same thing. He, he believed God. He had faith in God. 
that he was able to make these impossible things possible. That's, that's how he did it. I promise you it's the exact same for you and I today. Exact same. Whatever, whatever the impossible thing is that you're facing today. Because here's how this usually works out. In fact, I'd say almost always works out whenever we face something impossible in our lives. This is how it works out. We, we, we're faced with an impossible situation, and either because we just continue to fail at it no matter how many times we try, or an impossible situation just, bam, lands right in front of us, and because we can't see any other possibility, we come to the end of our, our abilities, our skill set, our rope, we're just like, okay, I can't go any further here, that's still over there, and then we just say to ourselves, okay, well, I've tried everything I know how to do. It's not working out, so it must be impossible. It can't be done. Sometimes we get there very quickly. But think about it. In, in, in each of those scenarios, what's the object of faith? What's the object of what you're trusting in? Isn't it, isn't it you? It's you. That, it looks impossible because you can't think of anywhere else to do it. Your abilities can't make it possible. I promise you, listen to me. I don't care who we're talking about. I don't care if it's Abraham, Moses, David, Paul. If they were looking to their own abilities to be able to accomplish those impossible things, they wouldn't have accomplished a single one of them. We'd have none of these stories in here if they were looking to their own abilities to accomplish those things. Because you see, when Abraham was faced with the impossible things that God called him to do, when he looked at the impossible things God promised he would do, the object of his faith wasn't himself. It wasn't his own ability to accomplish those things. The object of his faith was the one who was calling him. The one who was promising. That was the object. And I don't know what impossible things you're facing today in your own lives. Actually, that's not true. Some of you, I do know what you're facing. But maybe... Just, just maybe, the reason those things continue to look impossible to you, the reason you continue to come up against failure after failure is because you're only looking to your own abilities to fix them. You're only looking to your own resources to be able to handle the problem. And so it continues to remain impossible. Or we just continue to put that if-when clause in front of our obedience because we think what we really need most from God is for him to just make our problems manageable enough so that we can now handle it with our own strength. That's not, that's not what God wants for you. That's not, what, that's not what we're seeing here. The only path to success in these situations is to put your faith in the one who has unlimited resources, infinite ability. Make him the object of your faith, Hebrews 11 says, and you can truly see those impossible things become possible. But it's the only way you'll do it. Okay, that's the object of faith. The last thing I want to talk with you about is faith in the promise. Faith in the promise. And we need to look at this because for all the faith, all the belief that we see Abraham having here and demonstrating, by the time we get to the very next verse of our passage in Hebrews 11, verse 9, look with me there. We see that although Abraham had been promised this land of Canaan and his inheritance, God led him to it so that him and his family are there. He still lives the rest of his days 
Camping in tents, which we've already established. That's a temporary existence. And it begs the question, okay, did God really keep his promise? Did he really receive the land that God had promised to give him as an inheritance? Look at the beginning of verse 13. It makes it even more confusing. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Which at first makes it sound like as if God was actually not faithful to live up to what he promised, wasn't it? Sounds like he, he, he let them down. Like all these promises were just a way to motivate them and God knew it would be like a carrot on a stick that they would never actually reach. Is that what's going on? Well, if you look at the language used throughout this passage of these faithful witnesses, look at what they called themselves. They saw themselves, it says, as strangers and aliens in a foreign land. Language even Abraham used for himself. Second half of verse 13, verse 14. Strangers and aliens in a foreign land. And all of a sudden you start to see that Abraham and even all the generations that followed him, they didn't see the physical land of Canaan as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to them. They didn't see that as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to them. They saw themselves as strangers and aliens in that land. Even though God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. Now, what's going on there? Seeing myself as strangers and aliens. Look at verse 14 now. Verse 14 says that people who say such things, I'm a stranger and an alien in this land, show that they're looking for a country of their own, which I read as saying this. Living by faith in the one who calls us to the impossible means that while we might enjoy the earthly blessings God grants us in the life, in this life, we're never to see them or seek them as the ultimate fulfillment of his promises to us. But rather, as verse 10, verse 16 explicitly tell us, we're to always be seeking a better country, a heavenly one. That's the fulfillment of his promise to us. That whatever we see and face in this life, whatever it is, we're always acknowledging something better is still to come. Which I'm just going to go out on a limb and suggest that's probably a paradigm shift for a lot of us in here to think of it that way. Think of the, the gifts and the blessings in life that we're given that God doesn't intend those things to be the ultimate fulfillment of his promises to us. But here's why that's so important to understand. In the midst, if you look in the midst of all this talk about seeking a better country, seeking a better place, look at what verse 15 tells us. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. That verse hits me every time I read it. It seems out of place, and yet I think it highlights the key problem that comes up whenever we try to understand God's promises and blessings in our lives. Because, listen, if you see this life right now, what you can see with your eyes presently, if you see this as all of what God has for you, that's the fullness of his goodness to you and what he wants you to experience, and all of his purposes for you are filled up in this present existence, and we all do this all the time, yes you do and so do I, we, we radically misunderstand what it is that God intends for our lives. And I promise you, you just set yourself up for disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment. 
Think about it. Take, take any blessing in this life that we seek as something, a good blessing from God, apart from our salvation, and you'll see what I mean. I'm going to use marriage as an example. Marriage. We think, okay, marriage, that's, that's a great gift. That's something that, a great thing to experience God's blessing to us. And yet, anybody who's married in here will tell you, marriage is hard. It's also hard. It's a lot of work. It brings a pain and, and suffering and difficulty, along with all the goodness and joy and, and relational intimacy. But if you saw marriage alone as the fulfillment of God's promise to bless you, that's God's gift to me. Great, I've got it and I'm holding it. When those difficulties come, all of a sudden it's going to start like God didn't keep his promise. Well, wait, 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 what's all this hard stuff here? This is your good gift. You promised to bless me. This doesn't feel like a blessing. Forgetting the fact that marriage... The way the Bible presents marriage is it's ultimately just a, a hazy picture of the true joy, the true beauty that's found in an eternity in the presence of Jesus as his bride. That's what our marriage right now is simply picturing. And plug in, plug in anything there. Just take marriage out, plug in anything. Having kids, getting that dream job, uh, uh, getting that dream car, uh, um, physical healing from sickness, whatever it is, plug any of those blessings in and you'll see whatever it is. You see that, you seek that as God's ultimate provision, a blessing for you, and it won't be long before you'll be finding an opportunity to return the life that you used to live before you knew God. Returning to the way you used to think before you knew God and you'll take it. Why? Because you'll feel like God let you down. He, his promises, he can't follow through on them. Christianity didn't work for me. I mean, this is exactly what you see exemplified in God's people after Abraham. You look at the Exodus. Uh, God leads his people out of slavery, and the minute that their expectations of God's blessings, what they would look like, didn't meet their experience, all of a sudden, temporal, immediate blessings of this life become their focus over the ultimate fulfillment that God actually had for them, and they're begging to go back to Egypt. Because they think this, what I can see right now, this, this is God's blessing. Oh, this isn't good. And they can't see the future picture of what he actually intended for them. But once again, verse 9 of Hebrews 11 tells us, it's only by faith, by faith, by believing God, that Abraham and all the others listed in Hebrews 11 could live a different way. Enjoying the blessings of this present life as good gifts from God, but always and never seeking that better country. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to his people, which means what we see exemplified in the life of Abraham is actually the definition of faith that we saw in verse 1 lived out. That he was sure of what he hoped for. Certain of what he couldn't yet see. And that although he didn't see the fulfillment of God's promise in the inheritance of a physical Canaan, he was enabled by faith to see and welcome the true fulfillment of that promise in a heavenly Canaan to come. And he could hold it right now as his possession as though he had it. Even though he knew it was still a long way off and he could only greet it from afar. And he could do that because he saw that as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Not the inheritance of some piece of property in the Middle East. He knew what the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise actually was. And we need to see that as well. We, we need to know that as well in our own lives. Think about it. 
Think about your own life and you individually. Apply this to yourself. What are you seeking God for? What do you want from him? What do you see as the fulfillment of his promises to bless you? Is it a relationship? God, if I could just meet that special someone, be with them, we get that. I'd be so, I would know I'm blessed by you. If I could have that child, get that career, have that healed from this constant struggle, this constant pain, this constant depression I have. If I could have that, I would know I'm blessed by you. Is it that? Is that what you're seeking from him? Or is the sure hope of an eternity with Jesus beyond anything this present life can even compare with, is that enough for you, even if none of those blessings you experience in this life? Because you see, it's not without good reason that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life alone we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Why? Because God knows that any blessing that we could experience in this world, still stained and broken by sin's curse, could never be anything more than a shadow. A shadow of what we'll experience in his renewed creation. In the true and better Canaan, where sin's curse is removed for all time and his presence, the fullness of his presence is there. What Hebrews is trying to show us here is that the only way we can truly even enjoy the blessings God grants us in this life at all is when by faith we welcome the ultimate yet unseen fulfillment of his promise as something that is truly ours now but is still yet to be received in the true and better country to come. I find that language of verse 13 intriguing. Look with me there again, quickly. Seeing and welcoming these fulfilled promises of God from afar. Welcoming them from afar. It's the language that theologians often refer to when they talk about the already, not yet. It is true now, it is truly mine, and yet we, haven't, we don't truly possess it yet. We're not experiencing in its fullness yet. I find that really interesting language. Welcoming, seeing and welcoming these promises from afar. Particularly when you consider something that Jesus said when he was talking about Abraham. Thousands of years later in the New Testament. If you don't know this story, John 8. Jesus has been interrogated by the Pharisees and religious leaders. They're questioning, who gave you authority to do all these things? And in reply, Jesus says this, John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Right? That, that, that was that forward-looking faith in the promise of Genesis 15. God said, I'm going to send this rescuer that's going to fix everything that's broken between us right now. He saw that day and he was glad. But look, Jesus goes on to say, he saw it and was glad. How? How how could he? How's that possible? Well, in one sense, the answer was what Jesus goes on to reply to the very same question when he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Which means, ultimately, he he was there because he pre existed Abraham. He's God in the flesh. 
That's what he's saying there. But according to our passage here in verse 13, it's also possible because by faith, Abraham saw and welcomed the fulfillment of God's promise to send this rescuer from afar. And because he so believed that promise of God, he was enabled to step out and trust God for the impossible things he had to do in the prison to leave his homeland and go out where he didn't know where he was going, to, to, to live as a stranger and an alien in the land of promise. I don't know, some, sometimes ignorance is bliss, isn't it? I find it a particular blessing when I go into the dentist's office and he's covered over the tools that he's going to use because it helps me not be more fearful of what's going to happen. Sometimes it is, it is bliss to have ignorance. I mean, knowing all the difficulties, the hardships that Abraham would face as he followed God, I'm not sure that not knowing where he was going or what he was going to experience was necessarily a bad thing. And think about it. I know that our existence every day, each one of us here, is exactly like Abraham's. God calls each of you every day to get in the taxi and head out into the same unknown future of whatever that day is going to hold, doesn't he? just trusting that he's taking care of everything, that he knows what he's doing and he knows best. He's got your best interests in mind. That's a decision we gotta make every day. He's standing there by the door saying, get in, let's go. It's gonna be good. It's not gonna be easy, but it's gonna be good because my plans are good for you. We face that decision every day. I'm not gonna pretend for a minute that that daily decision to follow him into the unknown is easy. It, It isn't. It requires a tremendous amount of faith, and yet I would say that putting your faith in Jesus is still absolutely warranted. It's still the right decision. It's still the best thing you could do, whatever impossible thing you're facing today, because unlike Abraham and unlike us, what we know from the life of Jesus is that in taking on human flesh, coming to earth, he knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he would face. He knew the pain, the humiliation, the horror that he would face in taking the punishment for the sins of the world on the cross. And yet because of the great love with which he loved us and in full obedience to his Father's will, he chose it anyways. He chose it anyways. How could he do that? How could he choose such unimaginable suffering an unimaginable loss. I think it's in much the same way that we saw in the life of Abraham. It's in much the same way as we see in our, in our passage in Hebrews 11. The very next chapter, Hebrews 12, tells us he was able to do it for the joy set before him. That's how. A future-looking hope in what his obedience would accomplish that enabled him to accomplish the impossible in the present. His faith so trusted in God and what would happen, what the fulfillment of the promise would be that he was enabled to do the impossible in the present. And if future-looking faith in God could enable Jesus to overcome that, surely it can enable you and I to face whatever impossible circumstances we're facing today as well. Let's pray.